This is Sea Power, a podcast from the Center for Naval Warfare Studies at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Our program showcases leading thinkers and doers in the art and practice of maritime strategy and operations, broadcasting their cutting-edge insights around the world and to all the ships at sea. I'm Isaac Carden, and I'm delighted to host today's conversation with Dr. Lindsey Cohn and Dr. Jessica Blankshane, both of the National Security Affairs Department here at the Naval War College. Views presented here do not reflect official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense. We're going to discuss some of their innovative work on civil-military relations. In particular, we're going to focus on manpower policies and unpack some of the implications of how states recruit and mobilize personnel into military service. We want to understand the people in the armed forces and how they got there, and why these processes are fundamental to military power and effectiveness. We'll center our discussion on the United States and how the recruitment and composition of our armed forces influences public attitudes and ultimately decisions concerning war and peace. We'll also consider civil relations from a comparative angle, devoting some attention to Russia and its efforts to generate manpower for its catastrophic war in the Ukraine. Starting with Dr. Cohn, could you tell us a bit more about your research interests and how you came to it? What it is about civil-mill relations and the issues of mobilizing manpower in particular draw you to the subject? Sure. Thanks very much, Isaac. So I'm from a military family, uh, and that played a big role in my life and my interests. Uh, Even as an undergraduate, I was interested in what military personnel and civilians thought of each other and under what circumstances force and killing might be justified or not. And that led to an interest in which people joined militaries and why they joined and uh, and which did not and why they didn't. Um, And I also had an interest in and an experience with Germany. I lived in Germany for many years, which familiarized me with a very different set of societal views on the military as an institution, on military service, and of course, a very different set of military personnel practices. So that variation also interested me. And I thought, you know, why... Why would different states do this differently? Why do different societies have different beliefs about what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate in terms of the burden of defense of society, the idea of what you're defending against? Again, back to this question of legitimization of force. When is it ever legitimate or justified to destroy and kill? Uh, And all of this sort of led me to investigate militaries as unique labor market actors, very different from private sector actors, but also as different in many ways from other public sector actors. And that's something I'm still very interested in. And so my research on manpower is one of the streams of research that I have. Another is on domestic use of militaries for law enforcement purposes. And then also a lot with Dr. Blankshain, with Jessica, uh, is on public opinion about militaries and about foreign policy and the use of force. So that's how I got here. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Blankshain, could you tell us a bit how you got here as well? Sure. Thanks, Isaac. So I came to academia for management consulting, where I developed a real interest in understanding how organizations behave, how they work. Uh, And substantively, I had always had an interest in the military, in national security policy, from a very young age, actually. Uh, So it was sort of natural for me to translate this into a study of 
the internal workings of national security decision making, trying to understand how the organizations within government uh, make and enact and implement these policies. And of course, a component of that is understanding how civilian and military organizations interact and how civilians and military members within those organizations interact. Um, So I do have a, a whole line of work that is more focused on that within government policy making aspect. But then I came to the War College and started working with Lindsay. And actually right about that time, we noticed a number of pundits and policymakers starting to talk about manpower in a particular way. And this was in the context of a, a time in Iraq and Afghanistan, starting to refer to the forever wars and the idea of, should there be more constraint on engaging in these types of military actions? And an often proposed theory was, if we had different manpower systems, and particularly if we returned to a draft, there would be less military adventurism. That struck both of us as a testable hypothesis, although difficult to test, and one for which there's historic context, because this is not the first time an argument like that has been made, but it isn't always made about the same manpower policies. You can come up with logically similar arguments about actually why a volunteer force would be hard for adventurism, because you need people to want to join it, why reserve component mobilization will be particularly disruptive. So that was really what piqued my interest in this particular line of research around manpower and how it shapes foreign policy. Thank you. And it occurs to me listening to both of you that it is particularly apt that you sit here at the Naval War College in the National Security Affairs Department teaching students who are from both civil and military branches of the U.S. government as well as from foreign navies. I'm just wondering if either one of you would like to reflect a little bit on how that informs your research and feeds back into the way you think about these issues? Sure. One really interesting aspect to me from being in classrooms that have, as you said, we have service members from across the different branches. We have civilians from different parts of government. We have officers from other countries' militaries. The thing that struck me actually is that there are often intra-military divides that are as distinct as the civil military divides. I think once in class we were using an example, I think it was tooth to tail ratio or something like that, um, that had been thrown out as, you know, these ridiculous civilians, they don't understand these simple terms. And some of our officers who were not from the army said, I've never heard that term. We don't use that term. Uh, And it was just a really interesting reminder that there certainly are some distinct parts of the civil military relationship that are civil military, but a lot of it is organizational and is not actually that specific to this application. Yeah, I would simply echo what Jess just said in terms of really driving home to us and and I think to our colleagues that we talk to about these things that we, of course, our field is called civil military relations and we care about it because in an ideal typical sense, there is some fundamental distinction or at least we, we think there must be some fundamental distinction between the people who fight the people who employ or enable the violence and the people who don't. But when it really comes down to investigating the differences that we think are the problems, we tend to find in a lot of cases that it's not actually a divide between civilians and the military, but divides among civilians and amongst military personnel, um, where they form sort of coalitions with each other and try to get their policy preferences through But yeah, I think that's been uh, really 
highlighted by, by working with this particular student body. Excellent. And that's a great transition into just trying to explore a little bit the parameters of the civil military relations field. And you've both given us a very nice flavor of that and some of the diversity in the field and the different relationships that, that are of interest. But I wonder if, starting with Jess, maybe you could give us a, a quick synopsis, because I know you, you wrote an excellent primer on civil military relations, specifically for national security professionals, really trying to lay out the fundamental issues at stake. But who are the key players and how should we conceptualize those relationships? Even more specifically, can help us understand why some people regard the core problem confronting the field as, quote, how to reconcile a military strong enough to do anything the civilians ask them to with a military subordinate enough to do only what civilians authorize them to do. And that's Peter Fever from your piece. Absolutely. And so I would preface this by saying I look at this primarily in a U.S. context specifically, but also in sort of a liberal democratic context, which places some nuances on the relationship, although some things are broadly applicable. So when I think about this, I think about sort of three parties and the relationships between them. You have the civilian public, you have the government, and you have the military. And again, this is assuming a society where those are separate things, which is not true of all societies. Um, but looking at the relationships between those, one that is most frequently studied in political science is what I think you're getting at with this sort of control question, the relationship between the government and the military. How do you create and resource a military that is powerful enough to do the things that you need a military to do, which is apply coercive force, uh, without running the risk that that coercive force is going to be turned on your own government and your own people? And that is uh, one of the ways that this is a distinct issue. Certainly, throughout government, we talk about what we call delegation problems, this idea of how do you get another party um, who is more expert than you to do what you want them to do. But there is a distinct flavor to it when that party is the one with the guns and the tanks and the actual coercive force. So that is a key part of this problem. But we also think it's important to bring it back to look at the other relationships too, right? It's not just about the government and the military. The civilian public has a role here too, both in their relationship with the military, which is where the, the civilian population is where the military comes from and generally returns back to after their military service. It's where the manpower comes from. Exactly. But then there's also the relationship, and this is the one that is most often not explicitly talked about, I think, within the field, is the relationship between the civilian public and the government as it relates to military policy and the use of the military. And that is one that also comes back to the manpower issue if we're asking questions about how manpower policies, how the link between the public and the military affect the public's role in overseeing the government's use of that military. Lindsay, you've written a lot on conscription and on the politics of military recruitment. And it strikes me that one of the key issues that you grapple with has to do with how effective the state is at reaching into society to extract resources to include manpower. So what are the major factors that shape the kind of military force a state is going to be able to generate from its society? Sure. So this obviously raises first the question of uh, what kinds of military force are on offer? Uh, what kinds of military could you have? 
Um, and the basic choices fall out along two axes. Because I'm a political scientist, there has to be a two by two. One is the size of the force in being or the size of the standing force, which can range from large to small, practically non-existent in some cases. And the other axis is how it's generated, either all voluntarily or by some mix of voluntarism and compulsion. And what that does is give us, you know, four options. You can either have uh, a large professional force made up of, you know, vo volunteers um, or a large force made up of uh, a mix of volunteers and conscripts, which generally produces a large reserve um, and is much more effective for sort of homeland defense type missions, whereas uh, a large professional force is more expeditionary, more capable of expeditionary um, missions. Or you could have um, a small force in being that can be expanded in times of need. You'll generally see those where security concerns are fairly small, but a country wants to be able to do certain types of missions. There'll be a specialized force. And if you want a small force that is not purely professional, not uh, purely voluntary, then you've basically got a militia system where you might have a sort of skeleton force in being and uh, a large group of population who are, who are ready and able and willing to be called into service for contingencies. In both volunteer cases, whether you start out with a large or a small standing force, they will need some form of either reserves or conscription if they need to expand, right? So if they need to mobilize more manpower than they have, they'll need either a reserve and or conscription. So that's kind of the basic set of, of options that a state has. And as I sort of in indicated, the factors that matter to what kind of force a state wants have to do with the security situation, the level of threat, um, and or the level of interest. So the United States, for example, has generally enjoyed a very low threat situation for most of its existence, although during the Cold War, you could argue that the threat was high. Um, but it has had global interests, right? So it has, interests can sometimes substitute for threat. Either of those mean you need a larger standing force, a larger force in being. Other things that will matter to what kind of force a state wants is going to be uh, state legitimacy to a certain extent, state capacity to tax and to enforce punishment on evaders, the sort of domestic preferences for government spending. If you have a domestic population that expects a lot of spending on non-military things, a state has only so much, so many resources to spend. And if the public doesn't want them spending on the military, then you can't afford a large military. You probably can't afford a professional military you certainly can't afford a large professional military. And then finally, and this is most of my research, the, the flexibility of the domestic labor market will matter. But in terms of what the state can actually generate, I think the most important factors are you know, state wealth and population, right? If you have a poor state or a state with a very small population, you have limited options. State legitimacy, popular attitudes towards the state, the more legitimate the state is, the, the easier it would be to implement any kind of manpower policy that requires lots of people. Otherwise, if you have a fairly low legitimacy, you're going to have to go with a small military. Um, state capacity, as I said, and willingness to spend, the flexibility of the labor market. But then there are a couple of other things that go along with what the state can generate. So one of them is the, I'll call it quality of the population, particularly in terms of health and education and skill level. And then you have 
issues like specific societal experiences with the military. So some countries that have had very traumatic experiences with the military organizations in the past uh, may have extreme difficulty building up any kind of propensity within the population to volunteer or not to evade conscription. Um, and then finally, I would say military organizational culture and popular perceptions of military organizational culture. Like, you know, is this a place where it actually is not too bad to be and I can I can sort of tolerate it? Or is this going to be hell on earth and, and I want to do anything I can to get out of it? Those are the kinds of things that I would look at when I'm trying to figure out, you know, what kind of military force does a state need or want? And what kind of military force could a state, in fact, generate? Right. And if I could just loop back to your earlier question, Isaac, about this sort of effectiveness control balance, I think it's important to remember that these manpower policies that Lindsay's talking about can also have important implications there. Certainly, we talk about the effectiveness side of it, right? How effective is a recently trained conscript who's only in for a year going to be versus someone who has spent a whole career. And again, that will depend on what they're doing, right? How high tech is their role? How much knowledge do they need? But it also has implications for what we would call the control side of the equation, because there are different theories and approaches to how you get civilian control, right? One, for the Huntington fans, has to do with professionalism and the idea that if you essentially indoctrinate your officer corps with these professional values, they will not threaten civilian control. That's a different theory than one that says, maybe we don't want a professional military. Maybe we want one that is actually has as few distinctions as possible from our population, more like a militia system. And then they won't be a threat to the public because they are the public. They have no distinct interest from the public. And so these manpower systems also have implications for how you think about civilian control. That is really helpful teeing us up to get a little bit more in the weeds on a paper that you both published uh, along with a, a co-author. And we've gotten a little bit of an intro to that in your comments thus far, but I really want to dig in on it a bit. Your exploration here of how manpower policies affect public support for war. And it's a very thoughtful study that we'll link in the show notes designed around a, a survey experiment that I think very deftly tries to tease out whether and why citizens prefer certain manpower policies, how they react to their government coming up with different ways to mobilize their population. So, Lindsay, one of the, your key moves here is to recognize that the choice is not just between a volunteer and a conscripted force, because a mobilizable reserve force introduces another really important variable that's often neglected. And it's one that is of special importance to the U.S., which has employed its reserve forces so extensively, especially over the last 20 years. How does the U.S. public respond to different ways of generating manpower for the military? Well, sadly, we found that the U.S. public doesn't appear to notice or care that there's a difference uh, between using active duty personnel and mobilizing the reserves. They did care about conscription. They did not like it, but not because they were afraid it would affect them personally. I'll let Jess talk more about that because I know you want to get into some, some of that with her. But we, Jess and I, are actively working on figuring out why the public doesn't notice reserve mobilization. And the most obvious possible answer is that they've just gotten used to it uh, and see it as normal. But we can't test that. We can't go back to the 1960s and find out how people would have responded to this survey back then. So we, that's very difficult to test. 
There is also the possibility that who is in the reserves has changed uh, such that a mobilization of the reserves is now objectively less disruptive than it would have been in the sort of mid 20th century. There's also the possibility that the thing the public really cares about is voluntarism or what Krebs, Ralston and Rapport have called consent. That is, so long as people volunteered to be involved, which reservists in this country have, it's not always true, but in this country it is, that so long as they volunteered, they're all the same active reserve, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe that's what the public cares about. So Jess and I are working on figuring that out. We have some ideas. Right now, it seems like the public really doesn't see any difference between deploying or doing some kind of operation with the active component um, and mobilizing the reserve component. So not particularly sensitive to some of those costs. And that's, that's where I wanted to turn to Jess. In your framing of the field, you lay out a bunch of the postulates that have informed a lot of prior research and, and a lot of it clusters around this idea of sensitivity to, to costs, whether to life and limb or to national treasure, and especially the likelihood that individuals will be personally affected by a war. So why do you think that you found in your, in your survey that there was somewhat less concern about these expected human costs of conflict? And what can we learn from that about the politics of military recruitment? Yeah, that's a great summary uh, of the cost expectation um, that is often assumed, and it takes different forms. And the one that has been more rigorously empirically tested is around casualty aversion. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been a number of studies done looking at how the public responds to actual or expected casualties, how that affects their support for war, uh, and finds that the U.S. public is cost sensitive when it comes to casualties. Um, We find the same thing in our paper, all else equal, people who expect more casualties from our hypothetical, U.S. casualties in our case, from our hypothetical action are less supportive. But that is not absolute. The literature shows that it's conditional, which goes with a lot of what we know about public opinion and foreign policy is that elite framing matters. How these things are portrayed to the public is very important. And particularly with respect to casualty sensitivity, that What matters is not just the casualties, but what the public believes about sort of why they're being incurred. If they think that the action is likely to be successful as being fought for a just cause, then they're far more tolerant of casualties than if they aren't. But the one that was particularly interesting to us, because it is so often asserted, but not as rigorously tested empirically, is the idea of personal cost, being personally affected. Sometimes you hear this referred to as having skin in the game. The idea that what will make people really care about a conflict is if they think that they or someone close to them will be mobilized or potentially killed or injured in this conflict. Uh, And that was one of the things that we wanted to try to test directly in this survey. People assume people don't like a draft because it puts them at risk. We were trying to test that and say, is that why people don't like a draft? Uh, And our study does not find strong evidence that that's what's going on. We find no support for a link between expecting that the conflict will personally affect you and support for that conflict. Granted, this is an experimental setting. It does not translate perfectly to how people will behave in the real world, but it's what we have. We don't have clear answers on why that is. We can think of a few possibilities. Some have to do with what we might call motivated reasoning. 
ideas about, well, if this is going to affect me, it must be really important and I'm paying this price for a good reason, which sort of links back to the legitimacy. We're also seeing a situation, given the current context of the all-volunteer force, where people with a connection to the military not all, right, because your family members can make choices for themselves, but there is more of a self-selection into the group that is likely to be affected in all cases, right, because if the standing forces activated, those people will be affected. You would expect a strong psychological sort of protection rationale for thinking that this conflict is important and that the fact that you're paying a price actually means that it's good, not that it's something that you should turn away from. And also just even back to organizational culture and things like that, if the the organizational culture you're in incentivizes deployments, incentivizes being in combat, if those are the things that are important for your career, not at all saying anyone is a warmonger or anything like that, but you might be less resistant to paying those costs if they are portrayed as something that is good and just and advantageous to you in some ways. Speaking of that portrayal of the cost, it strikes me that a really fundamental part of your thinking, and I think any logical thinking about these connections has to do with the information that society and the, the potential pool of manpower is receiving to include from their government. And it strikes me that, and I'm going to drag you maybe in a comparative direction that you haven't gone, hopefully it, it is of interest, but how does the logic that you identify here about public opinion and manpower obtain in societies where the types of information that people are exposed to is going to be remarkably different? And here I'm thinking really particularly about a place like China or a place like Russia, particularly wartime footing Russia is very actively thinking about how to shape the perceptions of society and encourage them to uh, support the fatherland. Sure. I think two hopefully quick points I'll make there. One is you bring up an important point that there is, I think, a broad tendency to think democracies are different, which they are, but that they are so fundamentally different that the same dynamics are not at play. And they are. The system is different and it matters, right? The way that the public can and does exert checks or pressure on the government is different depending on the system of government, but there's no system of government where it doesn't exist, So I think that is a really important point, that even in a country that is not a liberal democracy, these things still matter. They matter in a different way, and understanding the system and the ability and ways that dissent or lack of support for policy get channeled are important, but they still matter. But another is, I think the information environment you point out is an interesting one, and another case where this is not distinct to non-democracies. We see this in the U.S. case, too, both generally in the literature on elites' ability to shape public opinion, but even some specific research, like work being done by Mike Robinson, who looks at different information environments within the U.S., um, particularly looking at things like, you know, who watches Fox News versus CNN or different newspaper sources, and sees that those people were consuming very different information about the U.S.'s ongoing conflicts and that that had consequences. Strikes me that regime... Type is a commonly employed framework. We've heard about democracies and we've heard about things specific to the United States. But I'm wondering, Lindsay, from your perspective, having thought about some of those social and institutional factors that shape states, 
is regime type a useful way to segment some of our studies on this or is that leading us astray? Well, as usual, Jess already said several of the things I was going to say. I do want to reinforce what she said about the information environment absolutely matters, but information manipulation happens everywhere. The fact that it happens is universal. I simply think that in less free societies, it's easier to do. Um, And what that means is you have an easier time in less free societies convincing the public that what you're doing is legitimate or necessary. In other words, you have an easier time convincing the public to bear the costs. That, I think, is a difference. But whether it matters whether whether the public wants to bear the costs or not kind of gets back to Jess's point about, you know, to a certain extent, uh, what the public feels about something matters, but it won't necessarily change policy. But specifically in terms of whether regime type is a useful way to think about these problems, yes and no. There are some things where I think regime type matters a lot in terms of questions like what is an uh, normative questions, like what's an appropriate relationship for the military and society to have with one another. You know, liberal democracy espouses certain values that um, need to be respected in order to continue being effective, right? Whereas uh, sort of non-liberal democracies don't need to worry about those as much. But I do think, as just said, again, the mechanisms of how these relationships work are very similar across mm-hmm. different regime types. And, and to go the other direction as well, non-democratic regimes, as Jess indicated, also need legitimacy, right? Dictators cannot stay in power if they have to use force on everyone. They need a certain level of legitimacy, and they use information manipulation to do that. To, to sort of get a little bit more into it, if you go back to my list of how states generate manpower, uh, non-democracies of many different kinds, often struggle with state capacity. Not always, right? You have some non-democracies that have great state capacity, but many don't. They often have less flexible labor markets. They often, but not always, have populations with problematic health and educational status. They tend not to have healthy military organizational cultures, etc. So what that gives you is they frequently cannot field very high-quality militaries, even if they're able to get numbers. How much does public opinion matter about all of this? So Jess mentioned earlier different modes of control, and one of the ones that she didn't bring up is what we call coup-proofing measures, which are ways that regimes deliberately try to reduce the likelihood that their military will create problems for them. And some coup-proofing measures matter for whether public opinion matters or not. So for example, If a regime is able to ensure through certain measures like ethnic identity, religious identity, family or tribal identity, or party loyalty, things like that, if they are able to make sure that the military and security forces are likely to stay loyal to the regime, then guess what? Public opinion matters much less, right? Um, Because if you can ensure through these deliberate measures of control of the military and security forces, if you can ensure that they will stay loyal to you even in the face of a public that is protesting or rioting or whatever, then you can withstand public dissatisfaction even with, uh, with high costs. There's another comparative direction to go that keeps us on our, our sea legs here at the, at the Naval War College is to think about what you're learning, not just about manpower mobilization, but about civil military relations in general. 
how does that affect the prospects for the United States fielding an effective naval force? What are some of the considerations comparatively that make the Navy different? Yeah, great question. And that's one where I think a lot of, especially U.S., but I think not exclusively, sort of civil work either implicitly or explicitly focuses on the Army. Um, Land forces. Yes. Sorry. Thank you. Land forces. Um, because in some ways that that coercive threat is the more direct threat. Um, sure, your Navy could blockade you or things which would not be ideal, um, but usually the Army is seen as the more direct threat to the government, to the population. So we tend to talk about navies a little bit less. And I think from a manpower side, it's also interesting, again, thinking in the U.S. context, where the services have developed a very different sort of op-tempo, for lack of a better word, and modes of functioning in terms of both how they adjust size as needed, right? Um, Thinking about even the way that the reserve component has been used over the last 20 years has looked very different, the way that it was used for the land forces versus the way that it's been used for the Navy. But also just sort of the way our Navy operates, a ship needs its staff, right? And that doesn't change. And a lot of our ships are underway a lot, right? When not actively engaged in combat. And that makes the sort of tempo of personnel both coming into and out of the military, but also what they do in the military and sort of the disruption to their normal life of being in the military looks very different service by service. Yeah, so a couple of things I would point out about naval manpower. Again, I I agree with everything Jess said about sort of the civil-military relations aspects of navies and that most civil-military relations scholars have not looked as much at navies and probably needs, uh, needs to be redressed. But in the manpower area, we have looked at navies because navies need to be, you know, filled with personnel just like everybody else. Um, and there are, as Jess indicates, some some differences, some significant differences between finding personnel for navies and, and how you get good navies uh, and, and finding them for armies, air forces, etc. Um, one of the things uh, that Jess is uh, talking about is this different operational tempo. Um, and you see this in terms of recruiting patterns uh, over decades, which is that in peacetime, very few people want to join navies because in peacetime, you still have to be at sea all the time. And that's mm-hmm. horrible and nobody wants to do it. Sorry to all of <laughs> naval listeners. Sorry, I, everyone listening from a ship. I'm sure you <laughs> love it. But during wartime uh, or during operations, people would much rather be in the Navy because it's significantly safer to be in the Navy than it is to be in the land forces, which are generally doing much more close in fighting. Um, So you do see that kind of pattern happening. So that's a problem for recruiting during peacetime. And, And quite frankly, we'd rather be in peacetime. So that's a problem that most militaries are going to be looking at. The other issue that the U.S. Navy is going to have right now is that Navies like air forces generally need a lot of a higher proportion of personnel with technical skills. Um, And while the Navy is happy to train them in those technical skills, they need to have aptitude for those technical skills, which means the Navy usually needs much higher aptitude enlistees than the Army does and the Marine Corps. 
And because they need those higher aptitude people who are interested in technology, who are interested in learning these skills, they are competing for that small pool of people with the private sector. Mm -hmm. uh, and while the US military has, for the most part, been able to offer decent pay, at least compared to the, to the private sector for most of the last several decades, really good benefits compared to the private sector. In the tech sector, that is not necessarily the case anymore. Um, and so the, the US Navy is now competing with a private sector that is also offering training in some cases to high aptitude people. It is not able to match the pay potential um, and the, the benefits are starting to even out in some cases because um, there have been several social movements in the US recently to try and get things like parental leave you are starting to see more businesses, especially tech businesses uh, and businesses that require skills like manufacturing, they are starting to offer more of these benefits. So the, the, the Navy tends to have a harder time than the Army, even though they are much smaller and have to recruit a smaller absolute number of people. And I would just, uh, one other thing that I want to point out, uh, because Jess brought it up, and because it's one of the things that we've sort of been talking about is that the Navy Reserve operates very differently than say the Army or Marine Corps Reserve or the Air Force Reserve. One of the main differences is that a significant portion of the Navy Reserve isn't organized in units the way that these other forces are. The exceptions there being air wings and air squadrons and a couple of the medical service units. But we don't have whole ship crews as reserve units anymore. We did used to for a little while, but, but we don't really have mothballed ships. So uh, reservists with surface or submarine ratings are going to be assigned to ships to fill in holes, which is a very different way of using a reserve than you do with the land forces. And so to a certain extent, I mean, some people might like that more, uh, but many people like that less. And it's harder to keep people active in the reserve, in their drilling uh, and training, if they are sort of on their own. Now, naval, Navy reservists have Navy reserve centers where they go and do their training, but if they're not in a unit, there's a little bit less of that cohesion aspect that helps them sort of stick with it. So the Navy definitely has some challenges coming up that, that other services don't necessarily have. Thanks. And so I want to turn in our last couple of minutes here to apply some of your insights out of area, as it were, and think about the ongoing war in Ukraine, and more particularly about this active crisis mobilization underway in Russia right now. I'll note that the Russian force prior to is a 30% conscript force, 70% contract soldiers. But in late September, there was an, a partial mobilization order for another 300,000 troops, and reportedly as many as a million to include men as old as 65 and relaxing a lot of other parameters that usually go into it. What are you looking at when you're watching this mobilization? What are some of the things that we ought to be considering? Well, I, I think it's pointing out the obvious to say that this is not going to be a high quality force. I think Putin knows that. I think he's not expecting it to be a high quality force. He's going to use it to plug gaps, to try and outlast the Ukrainians over the winter, to try and wear down Western support. I think that's his long play. Um, he does not expect any of these people to win battles, um, which obviously has a, a pretty frightening moral component to it. He expects them to be shredded, but he wants something to be shredded 
so he can drag this out because he believes, at least I think he believes, that the longer this lasts, the weaker the support for Ukraine will become and the more he can um, sort of hang on to his fait accompli. For all of the reasons that I gave earlier, Russia was already looking at a not very high quality force. I mean, health issues in Russia are huge. The conscription system is very unpopular. There's a lot of avoidance and evasion, which is uh, expensive to, to deal with for the state and sort of reinforces in a vicious cycle how, how much people don't want to do it. The conscription system is very unpopular. There's a lot of avoidance and evasion, which is uh, expensive to, to deal with for the state. It's not a great organizational culture. It certainly attracts a certain sort of person, um, but there, there's only a limited number of those people. So I think for all of the reasons that I gave, this is not going to be a high quality fighting force. He's not mobilizing a public that believes that this is a, I mean, to a certain extent, Russia does believe this is a legitimate cause, but he's not mobilizing them in, in some sort of defense of the homeland, the highest motivator. He's, he's you know, trying to mobilize them uh, for, for something that speaks to their Russian-ness, mm -hmm. but, um, but I think he'd be hard to convince them, um, and it, it may not work that well. Um, I don't think you'll see a classic coup, though. I, I want to push home that just because of horrible outcomes for individuals and families, I do not think you'll see a classic coup. Leading indicators of that would be sort of audible discontent from the military, which you're, you're getting some of, um, and also maybe security forces arresting military personnel, which you're also getting a little bit of. But it would have to be a, a low-level coup, like colonel or below. None of the top-level people in the Russian military are super upset about the way things are going, and they mostly agree with Putin, I think. And low-level coups almost never work. Uh, they're almost always crushed. As we said before, public opinion is easy to manipulate. It's especially easy to manipulate in a controlled information environment. And people's discontent can be directed away from the regime. Uh, people's discontent can be and has been crushed. Um, most of the people who were brave enough to protest are now in prison. Despite the, the bleak sort of military picture that I'm painting, I do not think it's going to lead to regime collapse. I do not think it's going to lead to coup or, or anything else like that. I think it's going to do pretty much exactly what Putin wants it to do in terms of the, the military developments on the ground. Now, whether, whether it will be enough to destroy Western support, that I don't know. Tracking back to this, these three cardinal actors that we're thinking about, what, what does your kind of basic research and conceptual instincts about a mobilization like this tell you about some of the, you know, whether it's coups, whether it is mass disaffection or desertion uh, or other disintegration in the government? What, how are you looking at these relationships? What are some of the things that we might expect to see over time as this protracted war continues? Sure. So I will caveat this by saying that I am very much an Americanist, but I do think think we as political scientists like to think that the things that we study have some level of generalizability and that there are factors, you know, with broad applicability. And so I think one of the really interesting aspects coming out of the paper that we discussed earlier that we worked on, but the literature more broadly, is that we see 
a lot of evidence that people are not by any means purely rational in the academic sense. People's perceptions can be manipulated. We have psychological self-protection factors, all these things. But we still see a lot of evidence that people do fundamentally respond to costs and benefits at some level. It's not, you know, completely removed from the equation. And so certainly looking at things like what are the perceived costs, which have some objective component and some component that, as Lindsay said, can be manipulated and shaped by the regime, by the information environment. But certainly when you're talking about, you know, individual level decisions about whether to comply with the mobilization, if the costs of being mobilized are effectively infinite because it's seen as a death sentence, that might change your calculation about how likely you are to comply with that. And that will, at the very least, change, as Lindsay said, the costs of implementing that system, right? But our work also does suggest that there is a role for norms, and Lindsay talked about organizational culture, but also political culture seems to matter. Um, And so that's where, you know, in the U.S. case, we're looking at things about sort of this ingrained strand of small L liberalism and this idea of volunteerism and respecting individual rights. And we think in the U.S. case, that might explain, again, we're working to test this, might explain some of the just broad resistance to a draft. That is not necessarily transportable to all different political cultures. And that's not even a regime type thing. There are just different political cultures in terms of the individual's relationship to the state and what they think they owe the state in terms of service and contribution. And that will also matter for how people perceive the costs of different mobilizations. Some fascinating thoughts for Russian conscripts and all the other listeners here today. So I just want to thank you both now for sharing this tour de force of insights about the the broader field and really diving in, in depth to some of the key issues facing us today. So Uh, We at Sea Power wish you fair winds and following seas. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Views presented here do not reflect official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense. Thank you.